going to invite you, if you have a Bible, the words will be on the screen also, but join me in the letter to the Hebrews, chapters 4 and 5. <gasps> what? That much? Yes. Uh, number one, they're not really long chapters, but it's all one big message, and I, I just feel captivated by the Holy Spirit to give you the message, okay? How's that? So let me go ahead and read chapters 4 and 5 of the letter to the Hebrews. Before I do, though, let me do this, and let me do a bit of a recount. What, who is being addressed? Who's writing this? And I won't go into all the details on this. The author of this letter, now some of you have Bibles that say the Paul, letter of Paul is not it's just the letter to the Hebrews, but it's written most likely by Barnabas. And this is the earliest testimony that we have in the early church, and that Barnabas is the author. When Barnabas and Mark separated from Paul and Silas, they went in a different direction. Paul and Silas went to southern, uh, to Greece and Macedonia and that area where Paul and Barnabas had already established churches. Barnabas and Mark went to North Africa, which was also part of the Roman Empire. And they did a work, especially among Jewish people. And so there was a great turning by many, many Jews in North Africa to Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit through Barnabas and Mark. Now, several years later, Barnabas is writing back to those people from Italy. And the circumstance is that those people have experienced many years of very hard persecution. Very hard persecution. And they become weary of the persecution. And there is a Jewish cult that has been tantalizing them, that's been trying to attract their attention. And this is a Jewish cult that actually elevates the worship of angels, which, by the way, is just raw paganism, that elevates the worship of angels, and Barnabas is writing back. He's already written, addressed this issue in the very early parts of this letter. And But he, what these people are doing is they are seeking relief from the persecution by diluting the gospel. If you dilute the gospel, the persecution will go down just as almost as much as if you just walk away from it. If, for example, what is the gospel? What is the good news? Gospel is just an old English word meaning good news. What is the good news? The good news is that we start with bad news. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There is not one single thing any human being can ever do to make ourselves welcome by the holy God. We stink to him. We are an offense to him, but he loves us. God so loved the world. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the heir of all things, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might 
be saved. God sent the heir of all things, the heir of the full creation, became a man, fully a man, a holy man, perfect. Satan, no flaw could be found in him. He was that lamb of God. As John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A Passover lamb had to be absolutely flawless. When they examined a Passover lamb, they would feel the legs. They would make sure there had never been a broken bone. It couldn't have a broken bone that got healed. No, no, it could never have had a broken bone or... It had to be absolutely flawless in order to pass the priest's examination that it was allowable for the Passover lamb. Well, Jesus stood before his worst enemies, the high priests. The very men in charge of examining the Passover lamb during the Passover. They are actually literally examining Passover lambs in the temple at the same time that they're examining Jesus and they could find no fault in him. They brought him to Pilate and said, we want you to crucify him. Okay, what are the charges? We don't have any charges, just crucify him. What? And Pilate could find no fault in this man. When Pilate, he said, I'm washing my hands of the blood of this just man. He could find no fault in Jesus. The high priest couldn't even bring an accusation. And so Jesus, as the flawless Lamb of God, went to the cross, paid sin's penalty for us. And that's why it's, Jesus said, it is finished. It is paid in full. Our sin debt has been paid off, which gives his Holy Father perfect freedom to forgive sinners of every kind. We are going to be shocked when we step into the presence of God. Number one, we're there. (laughs) Number two, when we look around and we see people of renowned wickedness who may have, with their last breath, cast themselves on God's mercy and got it. And it was just as just for God to forgive them as if you did, if you maybe when you were five years old. <laughs> God is forgiving. He loves us. And his justice has been satisfied. So these people are being tr- attracted by this cult. Really, the motivation isn't because of what that cult is teaching, is to reduce the persecution that they are experiencing because of their clear stand for Christ in the culture. And so, the second thing that Barnabas is doing is, number one, he says, this is utter nonsense, worshiping angel, you can me, the angels are going to be your servants. (laughs) But, a kingdom is coming. A kingdom is coming. A kingdom is coming that will be unbelievably glorious. It is called a rest. And he uses the example. Let me just go ahead now and read Hebrews 4 and 5. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, what's the point that he's already made? God did the creation work in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Okay, this is the God of immeasurable power. 
The scripture says he holds the entire creation in the span of his hand. Literally, the creation is his finger work. It wasn't an exhausting task for him. So when it says he rested, it really means he, had, he, took, he, he started playing with it. He started enjoying. Have you ever made something that you sat down after you got it put together and started enjoying it? Of course you did. Well, that's what God, that's what it means when God rested on the seventh day. And by the way, he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. They're all reveling in this place of unrestrained paradise. There's not a, any blemish at all. They are resting. They're enjoying it. It's what we call retirement. <laughs> He rested. Therefore, since a promise remem- remains of entering his rest, he, will, he has invited us to the castle for eternity. You will be welcome in my presence. You will be welcome in my presence. As David says at the close of Psalm 23, you have prepared, prepared a table before me, a place of banqueting. In the presence of my enemies, my enemies will be looking on from afar and going, ah, 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 there's David sitting with, the, uh, with a welcome with the true and living God. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, meaning to the people of Israel, of the Jewish people coming out of Egypt, as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do not do enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He's talking about the people who have, who turned away from him. We are looking actually at three rests. There was the rest of the seventh day that Adam and Eve joined the Lord in and they reveled in this and it was wonderful until the fall of man messed it up. And then to the Jews who were in Egypt, God had said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a, I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you descendants and I'm going to, and I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. I'm going to bless you so powerfully that the blessing will overflow to the rest of the world. But your descendants are going to spend 400 years in the land of Egypt. And they went from 75 people to anywhere between 2.5 million to 4 million people. We're not quite sure exactly. The 12 tribes, at least 2.5 million people were there when God sent Moses back. And Moses threw down his rod and it became a serpent. He grabbed his rod by the tail, that serpent by the tail, and it became a rod again. And then he went before Pharaoh, and you have the ten plagues that completely destroyed the most powerful, wealthy nation anybody knew of on the planet. The Jewish people witnessed God utterly, completely destroy what they thought could not possibly be harmed. And they, as they left, as they were given permission finally by Pharaoh to leave, the Egyptian people, God motivated the Egyptian people to actually pour out wealth upon 400 years of back wages (laughs) upon the, the Israelis as they're heading towards 
leaving Egypt, heading towards the promised land. And then, of course, you have the event where Pharaoh, knucklehead Pharaoh, decides, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring these people back. I can't let them go. And so he chases after them with his army. And you know the account. The waters of the Red Sea parted. The Israelis all walked through between the walls of water. They got over into the, into the desert over there. And then they turned around. And here is Pharaoh charging between those walls of water created by their God. And they turned and watched the walls of water collapse on Pharaoh and his army. And Exodus 15 is the lengthy psalm of praise to God. They're throwing a party. And then God supplied to them water. He supplies to them manna for two years. And then they get to Kadesh Barnea, the southern part of the promised land. And they send in the 12 spies the 12 spies all come back and say, this is an outrageously fantastic place God is giving to us. Except, said 10 of them, oh, they have walls around their cities. There are a lot of people there. We can't handle this. Well, God didn't say you had to handle it, did he? He just said, obey me. The other two, Joshua and Caleb said, are you kidding our God, yeah, it's a place of great plenty, great bounty. And yes, our God is able to deliver this into our hands. But the 10 of the 12 tribes rose up and said, no, no, no. And God took the lives of those 10 who said, God can't do this. And they spent another 38 years in the wilderness because they refused to believe God. And then they went back. They did what they had, their forefathers had said couldn't happen. The children then conquered the land under Joshua. And that was the promised land. That was their place of rest that was promised to them. But they refused to step into that place of rest. Their unbelieving hearts disqualified them from welcoming that place of rest and stepping into it. And God says, because of your impenitent, rebellious hearts, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place, and earlier he is quoted from one of the Psalms, that he would lead them into a place of wrath. This is in uh, chapter 3. I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my way, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. But the passage starts, this is in chapter 3, verse 7, today. This is written about 300 years after the events. The psalmist, probably David, because he's called David by Barnabas. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, when David wrote those words, it was a warning not to people who had lived hundreds of years before. It was a warning to his own contemporaries. 
if you believe God, he will take us, he will take you as an individual, he will also take us as a nation into a place of rest. So you've got the rest of the seventh day in creation. You've got the rest of the land of Canaan, which the Israelis rejected going into. It was pure unbelief. But you've also got the promise to us. The promise to us. Ladies and gentlemen, God has a wonderful retirement program for his people. And the same measure by which you walk with him and are useful, a useful instrument in his hands in the here and now, you will enhance your kingdom ex- glory experience. You will enhance your kingdom glory experience. And that's what Barnabas is saying to these people. Don't step away. You've been loyal to Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, have you been loyal to Jesus? Some have and some haven't, but you can. We can all start today if we haven't been. And God will step you into kingdom glory. You don't even have a frame of reference to measure right now. He will step you into kingdom glory. And that's what Barnabas is holding before them as an incentive. Whatever price you pay now, my readers, to be loyal to Jesus will be more than made up for in the kingdom, in that rest to come that David was speaking about. There is a rest to come. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And what Barnabas is saying, he's not talking about the rest that was the seventh day of creation and the days that followed immediately. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Well, the Lord and Adam and Eve had a wonderful time in that wonderful paradise. Would you like to hang out in paradise? Think that sounds like a good prospect. (laughs) For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place they shall never, they shall not enter my rest. This is from David's pen. Since, therefore, it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, in the psalm we've already quoted from, today, after such a long time, like three to four hundred years after they entered the land of promise, here is this other day of rest, that God is speaking of through David's pen. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. It's not the rest of the promised land offered to Israel. It's a different rest. It's the rest of kingdom glory that awaits all believers of every age. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his, God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Why did God stop working? Because he was done. Because he was done. (laughs) The creation was perfect. It was completed. 
it was finished and he is now and part of that creation was Adam and Eve and they're all enjoying it together when Israel finally did under Joshua come into the promised land they enjoyed as much of that promised land as their faith brought into their lap which wasn't even half of it I don't think but that was as much as their faith would lead them to. But here is a promised rest for us, a day of coming kingdom glory. Retirement. Retirement. We get to live on the fruits of what we did in service to our Lord here. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his, God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Don't imitate Israel, what they did in the wilderness, where they spent, two, they spent, they had all that proof of God's power, God's loyalty to them. God met every single need they had in a very powerful, obvious way. And yet when it came to their opportunity, okay, are you willing to believe me and take this step into the promised land? They refused. And so they forfeited, that generation forfeited what they could have enjoyed. And when their children under Joshua's command, did step into that land. What happened? Ah, the walls of Jericho fell down. And all these guys, the guys that they were so afraid of, came out from their walled cities and got killed by hailstones <laughs> and Israeli swords. I mean, God just handed them their enemies. And in fact, it says in Joshua, more of their enemies died from the hailstones from heaven than from the Israeli swords. So was God able he was. Don't be an imitator of their parents who refused to believe the evidence, who refused to believe the promise-keeping God. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What is the mechanism, the vehicle that God has handed to us to enable us to walk in a way that qualifies us for kingdom glory? It's right here. It's his word. It's his word. It's his word. God himself sits down with us as our life coach. Let me show you Mark, Vincent, Tom, Madison, let me show you how it's done. Let me show you. And I'll be here at your shoulder the whole time. He is a great coach. 
Listen to him. He's handed you the handbook, but he's also present as you're reading the handbook to make its meaning clear. The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. (coughs) It gets down into our soul and spirit. No iron sword or steel sword gets to the soul and spirit. It goes to the joints and marrow and that's it. It's just our physical. He gets into the spirit us with the sword of the spirit piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He shows us, us. Ouch. Has God ever shown you, you, and you go, ah, ooh, yikes, yuck. He does that so he can cleanse you of that, so he can step you into a better place where you're actually governed by the strength of his Holy Spirit and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't call us to frustration and defeat. He calls us to victory. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees us as we really are, and he shows us us as we really are. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us lay hold, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest. Jesus is our advocate. He is our defense attorney with the Father. He stands and speaks for us. Now, his father is quite uh, enamored of his son. (laughs) And he loves hearing his son's voice. And so when our advocate, our high priest, stands before the Father and speaks words on our behalf before the Father, Because Satan, it says in Revelation chapter 12, Satan stands day and night before the throne of God accusing the brethren. But then our defense attorney, our high priest, our advocate steps out and said, yes, Father, let me show you my scars. Let me show you my wounds. What did he say the apostle to to Andrew? Excuse me, Thomas, not Andrew. Reach forward and put your finger in the nail print. Reach forward and put your hand in my side. Those wounds are still on display. And Satan loses every time. Because our advocate with the Father is God the Son who paid sin's penalty for us. He is our high priest, the one standing for, on our behalf before the holy God. 
Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, he's gone through, he is in the presence of the Father, Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of God. Do you think God the Father is going to have a... a, a, I I think he likes to hear the voice of his Son. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) The Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Don't let go. You are in a hostile environment here. Yes, I'm not... Dismissing that, says Barnabas. I understand that. But hold fast to your confession. Don't back down despite the hostility. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. And I think Barnabas is actually, he could have said, and way beyond. And way beyond anything that was a temptation to us, Jesus got the max version. Jesus got the maximum version. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He has been tested as we are, but he also succeeded in dealing with those temptations. But he knows what the weight of temptation feels like. And he is able to, and he, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, boldly, boldly to the throne of grace. Let us come boldly to the throne of gifting, provision. The word, same word translated grace here is also the word translated gift. God loves to give. He loves to give. This is the, the throne of grace that we may obtain what we need even more than grace. Mercy. We may find mercy and find grace to help in time of when we are in a place where we have a need, God gifts us in the need. He gifts us in the need. Look at Israel in the wilderness. They had, for 40 years, they ate the manna. By the way, in one of the Psalms, that's called angel food. The word manna means, what is it? That's what the Hebrew word manna means. What is it? And they would gather it for six days. They would gather it on the sixth. On the sixth day, they would gather enough for two days, and to get them through the Sabbath. But every all they had no culinary needs that were not met. They're eating angel food. They've got a river of water following them through the wilderness. Every need was met. We will obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. Lord, I need your help today. 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 Just a couple days ago, we have a guy who's sitting here that needed a blanket, would have liked to have had a pillow, would have had an... Oh, yeah, well, we got a whole bunch of this stuff just stuck back here a couple weeks ago by somebody else in our storage. And so God said, okay, here you go, and... What he was hoping to come away with was a blanket or two, and instead they stuffed the car. <laughs> That's called grace to help in time of need. 
And it happens, and it happens, and it happens. That's the kind of God we had. Well, I boasted at the beginning of this message. I said, okay, we're going to do Hebrews chapters 4 and 5 as an act of kindness to both you and me. Uh, we're going to conclude here with the close of chapter four. <laughs> and But please remember everything that we've said today. Seven days from now, we're going to come back and do chapter five. So remember everything, okay? In fact, what I'm going to do is so I'm going to pick out one of you. No, I'm making this up. <laughs> uh, Jason could probably do it. Uh, I'm going to pick out one of you and have you come up and recite everything that I said today. So this is going to be on the internet so they can actually memorize my message, so, no, nah, I'm making that up. Okay, please, P- forg- you will forgive me. You will have grace and mercy for me, right? Our Lord, we do want to thank you that what has been stated here is true. There is a rest that awaits us. There is a kingdom of unrestrained glory that you are eager to welcome us into to step us into the maximum the maximum receipt of that glory. We are asking that you would enable us this week to walk according to your promises, that we would not embrace the world or allow the world to embrace us, that instead we would walk according to your promises. All that every need we have will be met with in, a, in a way that has your fingerprints on it. And that's what we seek for. And we ask for this week that you will grant us that experience as we authentically turn to you, and also that you would grant us the opportunity to share the good news message with someone else who needs it. We ask this of you, Good Shepherd Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.